Welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is... Miguel. Cody M. Yep. DMs here that talk about the process of DMing by way of recounting old sessions we've run, Dungeons & Dragons games we've run in the past. It is uh, the 8th of June... Uh, we are recording the 16th episode. No. Oh, here we go again. The 18th episode, which is the 17th session. It's The session is behind because the session is with The 17th session zero. for your game, but the 6th for mine. Right. Well, it's it's my 17th session. And I mean, I don't know if my campaign ends. I don't know if I'm going to break the session thing because I feel like these are like our sessions almost more than, you know, the sessions we, we're we talking only about. actually note the sessions like sort of vaguely in the episode itself, but I just give the episodes titles when we upload them. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, obviously each of my adventures that i talk about is an operation so in that case for me it's uh operation wormwood dusk still coming off that album uh mourner by kana and uh you you're on chapter six it says yeah can you ripper yeah that's right the title's ripper can you guess what this session is going to be about is it about the the Jack the Ripper secretly an alien? Oh, you're you're pretty close, but yes, along yeah. those lines, something like that. Okay, um, yeah. Where do we want to start? Do we want to jump on into it? Sure. You know, I might as well talk about this one because this is a this is a pretty fun one, and this is I I feel like this kind of unofficially marks the end of act one of minds metal and wheels part two because as i've been alluding to previously this is where things are really going to kick off in a big way uh so at the end of the last adventure uh the players had had like a little showdown in the air with a, a triad airship they were on their way back to scotland yard because melville uh has summoned them back for Reasons unknown as of yet. They had a little sort of diplomatic scuffle with Nathan Garrett, their captive, uh, and managed to sort of talk him down and make an ally of him, essentially. And at the start of this adventure, uh, they he is basically he's explaining himself. He's recounting how he has an affliction. He is a lycanthrope. He uses this sort of to reference Rift, uh, like a juicer-esque rig that he uses to inject himself with Wolfsbane to, like, keep the spells at bay. But every now and again, he wolfs out and kills some livestock. Um, and they take pity on this guy. Uh, it helps that I in <laughs> I injected his character not only with Wolfsbane, but with a lot of paper. <laughs> um, a juicer rig from Rift's. Yeah. <laughs> yep, a juicer Normally rig. Only one of those rigs. means you're only going to die you're only going to live for like 7 years or something. 
Well, I mean, it's not, it's, it, it's the injection rig, but it's not like the constant flow of, uh, of uppers that juicers and rifts have. It's more just, I wanted to give them this kind of gross, like, you know, injections are gross, man. So I wanted to have like this Cronenberg-esque, almost like leather bondage harness. Yeah, especially With all these little injection you, points throughout. Like, yeah, that's going to be like some sort of thing out of the Nick. A crank-operated yeah, injection suit. So they take pity on Garrett, and they allow him to walk freely in the lantern, but he's pretty antisocial anyway, and uh, that'll, that'll come into play in this adventure. So they arrive at Scotland Yard HQ. Uh, they, they couldn't, uh, Melville wasn't there. He was, they were told he was at the House of Lords, so they decide that they are going to proceed to rendezvous with him basically at parliament um did you just hear my cat no no good did you okay. just hear my spider no <laughs> yes a lot of i don't know eight, where he is eight heavy footsteps um so as they exit scotland yard i had a, you know i just took the the time to describe steampunk london in detail uh, it's daytime, so the streets are bustling, busier than in San Francisco. I fill, you know, a bunch of details like rickshaws drawn by automatons, you know, run by. Uh, and also they notice on the street corner, there is uh, a robot with like a glass plate in the front. And it's basically a robot with a newspaper box inside. And he's doing like the, the paper boy thing saying, you know, extra, extra ripper strikes again. Uh, the extra, pitch fluctuating extra up and down can. as the uniform man winds, like a, a man winds the automated newspaper vendor back up too. Um, so the party gets back on the lantern and they're going to proceed to, uh, to parliament. But, as they arrive there, they find that the streets outside are just clogged with people. This is actually, again, you know, I, strange intersections with things happening in my campaigns in the real world. But there's a massive protest going on outside of Parliament. Uh, so many people that there's no spot to easily land the lantern. So they decide that they're going to land it in like a nearby alleyway away from the crowds and just sort of shut it down. And uh, <clears throat> because there's so many people, Garrett uh, and, and Quelm decide that they want to stay out of sight and they offer to watch over the lantern in absence of, our, of the heroes. Um, so the players sort everything out. They make their way to Parliament and find themselves in the thick of the protesters. The protesters are shouting that Scotland Yard needs to do something about the Ripper because there's been another murder. And uh, they arrive just in time to see Melville walk out the front gates. And he's accompanied by some police officers who keep the protests back. Uh, I had it so that there are all these different Jules Verne steampunk means of transportation around London. And one of them was uh, an aerial steam carriage service. So basically it's like, you know, a carriage that you'd see drawn by horses with wheels, except it has no horse, no wheels. It's just that that carriage box and then it has uh four like steampunky propellers one on each corner and uh it allows it's like an air cab service so they meet up with melville everybody gets into one of these air cabs he directs it to where he wants to go and it flies up into the sky high above london and melville addresses them 
uh, each in turn, you know, he says, Abendroth, it's good to see you again. He kisses Lady Anna's hand and says, you know, tales of your antics are often swapped over games of cribbage with my men in the off hours. And uh, I should note, actually, I, I hadn't mentioned this, but from a character standpoint, Morwood, as soon as he found out, he's got some like long-standing beef with Melville. Apparently they disagreed when they were like in the service together at some previous point. They never really fleshed out their their backstory, but Morwood was playing it so that he had like friendly animosity towards Melville. And in part, Melville is like responsible somehow for Morwood being discharged. So as soon as they're alone with Melville, Morwood is going like, okay, so when am I going to get my ship back if I'm doing you all these favors by helping you out with all these, you know, these problems that you need solved? Uh, and Melville concedes, he goes, okay, yes, at some point we'll try to, to reinstate your rank and get you back your ship, you know, because of your help. But at the moment, you'll have to remain undercover. Uh, and the last thing we need right now is, you know, some scandal with a previously discharged officer being reinstated and like ousting a current captain. So for now you're undercover. And then Melville turns and he sees Rath McGrath and he goes like, and I have no idea who you are. So they introduce each other. Um, the air taxi arrives outside a nondescript brown building. Uh, at this point, only Abendroth had been there. So he recognizes it as the Secret Service Bureau headquarters, but the rest of the party just sees it as a shabby building. I'm doing a BPRD, men in black kind of a thing, an unassuming facade hiding uh, a complex operation. They go inside. Uh, there are, you know, officers working everywhere, well-dressed men. Uh, Melville leads the group into his office, shuts the door behind them. He offers everyone tea, serves those who want it. He has some booze if anybody wants it there too. Uh, and he also produces a box from in his desk and it has like Morwood's war medals that he's giving back to him. The keys to the narrow street warehouse uh, that were, it was part of the investigation into Sutter's death, but now they're being turned over to Abendroth, so they have the warehouse full of uh, Sutter's inventions at their disposal again. Uh, and he asks for a report. And uh, I left it up to my players to do the full report. Uh, and they, you know, they basically run it all down. And Melville says, like, this sounds considerably worse than we initially thought the way these operations are scattered across the globe, but also working in partnership with each other, working in concert with each other, suggests more than just impending war. It suggests infiltration, like an invasion under our noses. Enemies could be all around us and we, don't, we wouldn't be able to recognize them. So he says, from this moment on, we have to keep our progress in these investigations completely secret. No one outside this room with the exception of Quell, Mr. Quellen, of course, must know of the details of these missions. Uh, and then they start talking about the assassination of the Martian ambassador, or sorry, the Martian king. Uh, and uh, th the discussion started turning towards, the players were starting to go like, but why were they, why the assassination of the Martian king now? It doesn't seem like any of these facilities are ready to kick off yet. Like the projects are, and experiments are still ongoing. And clearly, trouble is brewing, some sort of war force is being raised, but it's not ready to strike yet. So everybody's really confused as to what's going on there. And I gave the players uh, 
the decision they get to decide is another crossroads, the next course of action. They can investigate the scene of the latest Ripper murder. Uh, Melville also explains that, uh, explains the details of that. Uh, the Ripper is on loose and the latest murder is, uh, a body of a Martian woman has turned up in the Seven Dials. Oh no, snap! Yep, so, uh, the players get to decide if they want to investigate the Ripper murder first, or if they want to go to the Crystal Palace that has been locked down since the assassination, and they can investigate there as well, now that the scene has been fully cleared by Scotland Yard. The players decided that first they want to take a look at uh, the Ripper, since that murderer is like still at large, needs more immediate attention. So they head towards the Seven Dials. And... I constructed the Ripper investigation kind of like you'd construct like a murder mystery party, like those murder mystery party kits that you can get for people's birthdays, um, rather than like handing out, you know, different roles for everybody to play. I just sort of set it up so that there isn't going to be a lot. Hopefully there isn't going to be a lot of combat. I hadn't planned for it to have any combat. Um, and I wanted it to be like a very interactive investigation where the players can sort of look around and choose sort of where to go, who to ask what, a few key players. And uh, the way I constructed it is I reverse engineered the mystery itself uh, from a, like a popular historical theory on who the Ripper actually was, in this case being uh, a consulting position to the royal family and most of the police force. Uh, very similar to From Hell, the Alan Moore graphic novel, From Hell. Uh, so I reverse engineered it so that all the details would line up with that. Um, thankfully I didn't have any, like, Ripper historians in the group who would see right through it. Um, so the players arrive, uh, at the Seven Dials, which is a real place in London, um, Police are there, like, blocking off the area. A street preacher in somber black robes is shouting to a crowd of people that the yard is wrong and the Ripper is in fact a saint, cleansing the streets of sinful filth. Um, so, like, the religious extremists are against the uh, the Martians, evidently. Melville explains that in, the time, in this time of civil unrest, the boys at Scotland Yard have begun recruiting a militia. Uh, McGrath sees... A familiar face. He recognizes one of his friends uh, from when he was in the Legion, uh, a guy I named Passepartout after the character from Around the World in 80, 80 Days. And the idea behind Passepartout is I wanted, he's Passepartout because he's just going to turn up, like he's going to be a recurring NPC who just happens to sort of be wherever the players are as he floats his way from military mission to military mission. So McGrath sees an old friend. The two of them have, like, have a quick little throwdown just for fun, because uh, Passepartout is also a big burly guy, and uh, the the two of them just sort of catch up a bit. And Passepartout says uh, he McGrath should, McGrath should cut loose and join him that evening for an underground boxing match. Why not? I have a lot of details here about the just sort of like the facts of the case. Seven Dials is an area that's rife with rife with crime. The man heading up the latest uh, Ripper murder investigation is Chief Constable McNaughton. Here are the names of the victims. In addition to the canonical five women who were murdered by Jack the Ripper, I also included 
that there were a few more murders that matched the Ripper's MO but weren't confirmed. Uh, and so, it, you know, the, the Ripper was, in fact, even more prolific than was previously known. And then, of course, the latest murder is that of a Martian woman. Um, and it all depends on how the players want to investigate it, but George Philip Baxter is the name of the police pathologist working on the murder, and he is, in fact, the Ripper. And this, and like one key, here's, here's sort of a key detail to, to really sell it. But, uh, the way the, the players found out it was him is because the women who had been murdered by the Ripper were prostitutes. They investigated the nearest brothel and they found out that this guy Bagster makes frequent trips to the brothel. He never sleeps with the girls. They lie naked and blindfolded and, the players discover that's because he sits in the corner and then eats the organs of his victims as he watches them. Disgusting. Um, now, so he, and here's, here's a detail that the players didn't know. Bagster was a consulting physician to the Royal family and most of the police force. And the Martians have replaced him with one of their own. Since then, He's begun administering mind-controlling drugs to many of the top-ranking police officers, politicians, and the royal family. The weak among his victims are eventually killed and replaced by Martian and German spies, and the stronger victims are kept in a state of mind control and used to further the Alliance's plans. So this whole thing goes right up to the top. Um, but the players don't discover all of that. They just discover that it's Bagster. They lock him up and take him away. Um, the pit fight that was foreshadowed takes place in the basement of one of the pubs of the Seven, seven Dials, um, in an area of the pub that's only accessible through the guarded rear entrance. And then, uh, I, I also had that, uh, the, if the players had not caught Bagster at that point, I was going to seed him into this pit fight, but they had caught him. Like I was going to have him just in the, in the audience that the players would notice. They caught him. But I had the pit fight go anyway because I had I had uh, invited McGrath to it and he wanted to fight. So there's just like a little bit of a pit fight there. And then uh, the second half of this adventure, because this was a longer one, is they go to the Crystal Palace and start exploring and investigating there. The only they they figure out the trajectory of the bullet and where the assassin would have to have been in order to fire Visual it. calculus. Yeah, they, like, triangulate the whole thing. Um, but they don't find any new clues, except they do find that uh, King Selden's cane, which was made of liftwood, is floating up, and it's, like, stuck on the ceiling like a helium balloon, basically. So they get his cane down and retrieve that. That's They, they don't have any other major revelations about the assassination. So... After all of this investigating is done, they return to the Secret Service Bureau headquarters. Melville says, clearly, there's a lot more going on than we thought we knew. Uh, what needs to happen is we need to start infiltrating the Alliance forces to get more answers. Uh, the players have told him that they'd found uh, a map of an area of Brazil in their, one of their first assignments. So he says, go to Brazil. Presumably, whatever operations the Germans have going on there are already underway. Stop their operation. Steal identities and a ship. 
and discover who's in charge. I'll begin my own investigation into the Bureau and the House of Lords, and hopefully I'll be able to weed out who's trustworthy and who is otherwise. We will only communicate through the private frequency of my wireless telegraph. And he says, the fate of the world is in our hands now. And so the party leaves uh, the SSB headquarters. They're heading back to the lantern. They round the corner. And the lantern explodes in a giant fireball, knocking them all off their feet, like blasting them backwards, covering them in debris. And that's where it ended. This is just like in season five, Peaky Blinders. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, gosh, you know, Peaky Blinders would have been an ideal source of inspiration had it had it existed back then. That's the thing is like. I, I worked on Minds of Metal and Wheels parts one and two before there was this real resurgence of like period crime dramas. Like I feel like 2010 was maybe when like Boardwalk Empire kicked off and that led to stuff like The Nick and Peaky Blinders. Um, but that was all after I wrote this and it would have been, I sort of retroactively lament that it would have been such a good source of inspiration. And I gotta make a shout out because now you got Warrior. Oh, fantastic! Thank you for that recommendation. I've been pushing on people. I feel like people people forget about it because it doesn't have a very like the title. The title is pretty generic, just Warrior. Yeah, that's the number one thing uh, that I've had trouble with in recommending it to people. Is I go, you gotta watch this show, Warrior, and they can never remember it. But it's it's also another one that I think about a lot because of the current you know political climate and the police and everything but uh yeah topical can't wait for that second season whenever it's coming because man who knows now yeah really but uh yeah is there i i guess i mean ended with a bang yeah this Um, was a this was a pretty tight one because I wanted it to be, that's the thing, I I feel like maybe I've mentioned this before, but you always have to have this balance in your adventures uh, so that your players have enough interaction to make it feel satisfying. Like, you can't just put them on rails. You gotta let them do some of the work themselves. And because this wasn't going to be a combat-heavy adventure, You have to fill that combat does take a lot of time, even when it's fun. So you got to fill that time somehow. And in order to do that, I just had to like cram all the information I could into every interaction they had so that it always felt like each new revelation was like turning over a rock and like uncovering something big. Uh, So, yeah, I I don't really have anything to add unless you want to ask about like Jack the Ripper. I should say that about this time, like we're talking about sources of inspiration and how, you know, I didn't have things like Boardwalk Empire or the Nick to to draw ideas from. I was drawing ideas from from hell, both the graphic novel and the movie, because the movie I don't think the movie's great, but it is pretty stylish, which I liked. And uh, also around this time was probably like the Guy Ritchie, the first Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movie. It was a bit of a source of inspiration. Again, not that I love that, but it's fine. It's a fun time. Yeah. So, was in your version was he eating those women alive? No, he was disemboweling them, and then he was going to a brothel and staring at naked ladies 
on beds that were blindfolded, and while he was sort of lusting over them, he was eating the uncooked organs of his victims. Of of the of the previous victims. Yeah, the previous victims. He was bringing okay, them to the Okay, because there was like, I mean, again, it's COVID time, the... It's hard to get these chat connections going right, but you cut out a bit, and for, like, the whole time I was like, wait, he blindfolds the ladies and then eats them? Wouldn't they notice they were being eaten? <laughs> no, My no, no. God. He wasn't eating the women who were blindfolded. He Some was removing the organs stuff. from his victims and then bringing them with him to the brothel and eating them while ogling ladies. That was going to be... I had to give... I, I had to plot all these little details so that the players could catch on at any point in the timeline of this adventure. And so right. uh, one of the details is like if point. they had stopped Bagster on his way out of the pit fight, for example, maybe they would have like seen blood, you know, on, on one of his pockets or he had the organs on. They could smell something was wrong. You know, I, I had to give every opportunity to catch this guy that I could. It's a wet red bag you got there, bagster. What's in the wet red bag? Uh, exactly. Uh, meat. Um, okay, well, should I be launching into mine now? Yeah, go for it. Operation Wormwood Dusk. When we left off, the players were on the trail of the Nightside Eclipse. Uh, Guy Mourner and his uh, magical advisor, Carmen the Immortal, the Hag, who had sprung out of hell itself. Um, they had just fought some of the cannabis corpses, these new sort of uh, swamp thing, elemental undead that the Nightside Eclipse had just uh, brought to Drail, basically, and they had teamed up with an orc in the process. But after meeting up with that orc, they were hot on the heels of Mourner and Carmen, and uh, they knew, basically, that the direction that they were headed was towards the human capital of Austin, which they previously defended from orcs who were rampaging out of control when their leader was switched with a doppelganger. But now... Um, I mean, the situation with those orcs was that they could, the, the, the whole operation was supposed to happen in secret, you know, um, the humans were on the back foot, they had all sort of gone into their, uh, defensive positions and sanctuaries, and then as the orcs, uh, proceeded to charge them, instead they were headed off by the MPOC at, uh, special tactical locations, and so the, uh, the people of Austin in that case never knew that the MPOC had, were responsible for that defense. They just knew that when the final charge was supposed to come, it never came. And in this case, uh, however, the Nightside Eclipse was attacking Austin pretty directly, and the players were having to like just rush to the site and were like sort of playing catch-up. When by the time that they got to the city, and so they get to the city of Austin, and it is already under attack. It is already being overrun. I mean, this is a city that has fairly recently dealt with a pretty large-scale orc attack, and now they're suddenly being attacked by these monstrous, uh, like, vegetation-enhanced undead, the Cannabis Corpse. In addition, they're being attacked by 
uh, ogre zombies, minotaur skeletons, regular skeletons, whites, zombies. It's a bad scene. The undead are overrunning Austin, and the players are effectively... I mean, they're they're effectively too late, you know? They can only sort of do damage control at this point. So, um, they get in touch with a human who I think is, like, part of the local militia. Uh, you know, they the situation is chaos, so they are basically just meeting up with whoever they can. But they make contact with a guy I introduced by the name of Arn, who would go on after this to become the Empok's uh, primary sort of human representative within the human capital of Austin. So Arn becomes a big deal, and again, is an NPC in the Empok to this day. But uh, they get in touch with Arn, and he's sort of their contact on the ground. He's not with the Empok yet. He's just, you know, the guy that they talk to to say, okay, what's going on? Like, what is the situation in Austin? Obviously, it's bad. Um, the primary situation is that the Minotaur skeletons are, like, big groups of them are breaking through the city at its various, like, walls and gates and whatnot. And... Um, since there have already been so many points where these minotaur skeletons and ogre zombies have been able to break through, um, it basically came down to, like, there was some initial stuff where sort of at outside the walls they uh, fought, I think, uh, an ogre zombie and a couple of minotaur skeletons just to sort of, like, this was to make contact with Arn in the first place. But... Already, it was clear that there were, like, a lot of fairly high-level, or, like, not not high-level, like, vampire, but high-level, like, you know, big brutes in terms of combat types um, that the party would not be able to easily just, like, whittle down. And so, while they did do some fighting with these minotaur skeletons and ogre zombies, um, I think pretty quickly... Their decision uh, in speaking with Arn was we have to, like, cut the head off the snake, basically. We have to do our best. You know, these are skeletons. These are zombies. They are not necessarily going to be able to pose as much of a threat if their leadership is gone. So, uh, naturally, the team thinks, like, okay, we got to find these lieutenants that we've been fighting this whole time we got to track down carmen the immortal and mourner they're probably responsible for like the bulk of this army and if we can take them down then that's like our main mission here so the way i had it set up was that mourner and carmen the immortal uh so like sort of just a high like a high level like um white like maybe a white that i had beefed up with like good armor and like a magic weapon or something uh maybe a magic shield i think uh he was sort of the main boss and then also we had this uh hag in the form of uh carmen the immortal and uh this is another one of those times where it's like i don't often remember exactly what the players did in response to specific uh to each and every combat encounter but you know there's always something that will like stick out in my mind and the one for this one is that um i think previously we had spoken about like i talked about 
how once the warlock Alistair and Furnace got the proper level, I think it's seven, uh, to get the invocation Sculptor of Flesh, suddenly he got the ability to turn people into T-Rexes, and it was like, well, now it's T-Rex time. Um, similarly, I think this was at level eight, because they would have it would have been at a time where they had just recently had an ability score increase, and the reason I know this is because this was the session where I found out that Alistair had taken a fascinating combo of ability score increase and invocation. In fact, I suspect that this would have been level 9 because I think this would have been the invocation after uh, Sculptor of Flesh, which let him turn people into T-Rexes. This one... Um, so there's a a feat called spell sniper. Basically, it's if you have the spell that requires a range uh, ranged attack, you can double the range. It also has the sharpshooter uh, effect of like you can ignore up to a certain degree of cover, um, and you don't get long range penalties. Uh, and that's something that. Um, you know, you see in the sharpshooter feat for ranged attacks, and then this is basically the spell equivalent of that. Hacks. Yeah, and then also it lets you take, like, a cantrip that makes a, a ranged spell attack, but, I mean, that's just a cantrip. I mean, the fact is, that's not going to be important for what I'm about to explain, because you're about to see the hacks, my friend. Um, I had planned this session out with like okay either they will go and get involved in some like open battle scenarios less likely or they are going to head directly for this like watchtower in the sort of fortifications of the city that early on the undead have taken and that is where uh mourner and carmen are sort of running the show from uh carmen has like a floor of the tower that she has marked out with a ritual circle and she is sort of like running the magic uh center of the operation from there and then mourner is in the level above her just sort of like as the command officer and so my plan is that the characters are going to head for this tower they're going to like they may fly there. I think they did fly to get there because, like, it's just such an expedient way. Uh, I mean, Alistair has fly. Uh, I think Valfaron Draglin guy also had fly. They had flying items, as I've talked about in the past. So I think I expected them to, like, fly to the tower, but what I expected was for them to, like, land and then battle their way up the tower and sort of have, like, a classic boss fight with Mourner. But something um, tells me that's not what happened. No. See, the tower had, like, arrow slits and whatnot. Like, obviously, there were points through which Carmen's, like, ranged defenders could see out of the tower and, like, points through which Carmen has this sort of, like, magic... um linchpin to the operation could also look out over the battlefield and i had not accounted for spell sniper and i had certainly not accounted 
for Spell Sniper in combination with the Invocation Eldritch Spear, which doubles the range... No, it increases the range of the Warlock's Eldritch Blast to 300 feet. So with Spell Sniper, Eldritch Blast, but which is a great damage cantrip, by the way. It's a great pick for... Also, you can modify it a lot with Invocations if you're a Warlock. Um... Basically, his main attack cantrip, Alistair could now fire at enemies in cover without penalty at 600 feet. So, basically, Alistair became this sort of... Like, why not just give it unlimited range in game terms at that point? Yeah, he basically became this kind of, like, flying sniper who, as the players were like coming in on the tower was just able to like blast the bosses from outside just like shooting into the tower he was like an attack helicopter um so i have to ask you tom did this vex you when this was happening were you like fuck i made him too powerful um that was not my sentiment my sent i mean there was a sentiment of like fuck but the sentiment was uh Fuck, I thought they were going to fight their way up the tower. Now, one of them is just going to be fighting both bosses from the very beginning. Uh, (laughs) And so, yeah, it was kind of weird the way it played out because then you have the rest of the party actually kind of did things as I had planned where, like, you know, Magnus the Paladin is, like, battling through the minotaur skeletons to like storm up from the first floor and like valfar is buffing him and and Mealy is doing like sneak attacks but then the whole time they're fighting their way up this tower they have alistair just posted outside like an attack helicopter sort of like strafing the windows and just firing attacks i should also say like he had this for um for Eldritch Blast, where he could do this, like, super long-range sniper, once he got close enough, he could also start using spell slots to cast Scorching Ray, which also benefit benefits from Spell Sniper. And that's an attack where you... That's a spell where you can make multiple uh, fire attacks, which he was, like, an Infernal Warlock, and that was obviously his preference. So he's basically sort of circling the tower, firing through the window at the spell circle inside... Um, with, like, multiple fire shots that ignore cover. And, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, it was something to behold. Um, And, yeah, so they did... Actually, also worth mentioning is that once he had weakened Carmen to a certain point, he actually focused his fire on Mourner instead and uh, allowed the rest of the party to incapacitate Carmen so that they could capture her rather than kill her. Um, whereas Mourner, they, like, actively destroyed. And uh, that was... I mean, the trick was that at that point, um, you know, Austin had already taken substantial damage. Like, they could only do so much to help the people of Austin... Um, because even having taken down the leadership, the fact was like the undead armies had managed to break into the city and do substantial damage. And so, um, 
it was interesting. It was something that sort of foreshadowed a period of reconstruction that would follow for the city of Austin, which is sort of, it's like there was a reconstruction of Austin simultaneously because of this and because of the orc attacks that happened earlier. Like this was a city that found itself pretty embattled over the course of the campaign. And so the reconstruction was Austin of, of Austin then went on to become sort of a, a recurring plot element uh, in the campaign. Cool. That's a really interesting, like, DM's quandary there. The idea of the players inadvertently doing a pincer maneuver and winding up. Some of them wind up at the final boss while others are at the start. Huh. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it worked out largely because, I mean, when it comes down to it, Carmen was, effect was a pretty well-matched spellcaster to go one-on-one -on -one with uh alistair like um in other situations in that encounter like alistair couldn't have been the guy he couldn't have soloed the things on the ground uh so having the party with the paladin and everything still fighting their way through the the minotaur skeletons and ogre zombies was like that was solid and it was okay for Alistair to be split away from that and dealing with Carmen instead because Carmen was actually pretty well matched to what Alistair was dishing out, this sort of, like, flying uh, ranged attack procedure. Um, and so, yeah, it, it balanced surprisingly well, even though, yeah, there was that issue of, like, oh, I thought the whole party was going to fight this character. It, it's one thing that sort of... It is a recurring thing with MPOC operations in general where I allow them to plan their approach and how they're going to handle the the operations that I give them. And oftentimes, or, or maybe, maybe not oftentimes, but enough that I've noticed the pattern is I don't necessarily create characters in the typical villain way that I maybe traditionally would because this sort of thing happens where you end up with the maybe i you, you know carmen the immortal mourner i had characters behind these names and these villains and yet the way they ended up getting fought was in a way where there was like no logical way for them to give a big villain speech or anything it's like carmen's not gonna start making her speech when um it's all of a sudden she's getting like shot through a window from out of nowhere um you know it's it's the way it happens with these sort of um military operations and going back to something that i've spoken about before in terms of inspiration is like uh the game jagged alliance is like jagged alliance will have these characters these villains you know uh that are behind the bad guys that you're fighting and then when you finally fight those villains it just comes down to like oh i put everybody in a good tactical tactical position the evil tyrant got sniped in the head from like 500 yards and then the game just ends kind of unceremoniously <laughs> just like very abruptly it's like then suddenly it plays a cutscene of newspapers being like oh tyrant assassinated blah 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 and it's like oh man 
After all that, it was just down to one bullet, and then the game ended. I mean, I guess both of our games ended kind of abruptly. Yeah. Though, in my case, it was... Uh, I mean, and in truth, the players did have some time in this session for, like, uh, the mop-up, you know? At least getting a sense of the scale of destruction that Austin had dealt with. And they had made the contact of Arn and said, like, okay, well, the the MPOC is here for you guys. Like, you know, realizing that they could set up an alliance where they previously didn't really have one. Um, they sort of made themselves part of the uh, the plan to rebuild by making sure that the MPOC had their fingers in that pie. I like pie. Shall we uh, see if the tavern has any pie? Oh, good call. All right. Here we are at the non-Euclidean tavern. I got a pretty good one today. I'm pretty happy with. Oh, awesome. Um, I, I got a, a pretty basic one, but also a, a DM rant to go on. So it'll be a fun time. Oh, man. Okay, well, I'll I'll let you do your DM rant at the end. By That's all means. Okay. Today, I have brought a setting that you guys at home can use for your uh setting it's a cool kind of well well you'll you'll i i'm hoping that i'll just give you the rundown and uh you'll you'll get a feel for what kind of uh what, what kind of setting this is and then what kind of adventures you'd run in it um it's called tassie land the setting of tassie land can you imagine what maybe tassie land is Tassieland, Tassieland. Uh, no, no, I it, not off the top of my head. I keep on like, like real place names are popping into my head, like Tasmania or Swaziland. Hey, you actually got it in one. It's Tasmania. It's Tasmania. <laughs> it's post-apocalypse Tasmania. It's Tasmania after the bomb. And uh, lest you think that After the Bomb is the RPG, no, 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 my friends. After the Bomb was a, settle, was a supplement for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the RPG. And then this comes from the supplement for After the Bomb, Mutants Down Under. Okay, okay, this is making more sense now. The, the Ninja Turtles connection, I definitely get it. There was that that Australian like anthropomorphic mutant kangaroo guy, right? Walkabout, I think his name was. Oh man, this is basically his book, my friend. Um, well, I mean, really, it's perfect because it's for any Palladium system, and it's got it like it has so many races. It has kangaroo people. It has koala bear people. It has wombat people. It has emu people. Man, whatever you want to be. But we're just covering Tassie Land today. So it's uh it's Tasmania after the bomb down under. Population 3200 humans, about 7% with mutant powers, 128,000 mutant sheep and approximately 200,000 assorted mutant animals. The government Tassie Land, sometimes called Tassie, 
and known in historical times as Tasmania, is now a constitutional monarchy modeled after the pre-praying British government. King Bruce is considered to be the last surviving member of the British royal family, so his title also includes such archaic flourishes as Defender of the Faith, Ruler of the British Commonwealth, Emperor of India, and Governor General of Canada. Which is funny, because there's already a Rifts Canada, which probably conflicts with what's going on here. You could run a whole campaign of the war between Rifts Canada and Tazzyland over control of uh, Canada. I mean, not going to lie, I'd play it. He is also recognized by several of the Dreamtime Aboriginal tribes as considered by them to be some kind of Grand Chief, although they do not recognize or respect Tazzyland. It's actually an important note in uh, Mutants Down Under that there's been, basically because of the sort of uh, riffs kind of stuff going on, um, there's been like Dreamtime as a concept is now like sort of a fully realized like psychic space uh that allows the aboriginal humans of australia to um like they're at they're fully at peace with their mutant population basically because they're fully able to communicate whereas in other parts of the rifts world there's like big divides between the humans and the mutants and whatnot because they're uh they haven't had this like psychic uh chat space effectively to negotiate with him so that's what it means by the like dreamtime aboriginal tribes which is just kind of a, a neat setting flourish uh militia the royal militia consists of four thousand recruits mostly mutant animals this is still a rather informal group without much in the way of its official structure communications tassie land operates a national radio station which can be heard as far away as jakarta also Jakarta are like uh bad guys in, in this um setting. Like I guess it's being run by some tyrant and his uh army of mutant water buffaloes. But uh and and like I don't know, there's like hostility between uh Jakarta and like I think uh at least Australia or whatever. Anyway, uh, it regularly broadcasts weather reports and news. There are also two privately owned newspapers in Tassieland. Education. Education through sixth grade is mandatory in Tassieland, and literacy is around 80% for adult mutant animals and close to 90% for adult humans. So even after the bomb, you gotta go to school in Tassieland. Economy. <laughs> this is where things This get is fun. definitely a Ninja Turtles tie-in. The technological level is roughly equal to the 1930s with regard to most things. However, plastics have developed to the point where they can be used to replace most metals, except electrical conductors like power cables and wires. Aside from plants, the major food crop comes from a variety of mutant insects. Several kinds are being domesticated, and there is as yet no standard crop. And we're talking about big bugs, man, like big cow-sized beetles and stuff that they ride around on and stuff. There's lots of cool pictures in this book. Currency. This is, this is fun. In Tassieland, and among the various outposts in the Dreamtime lands, the standard currency is the Bicky, or paper dollar. There are two other denominations, Greenaways and Brass Razoos. 
One greenaway, <laughs> which is a paper currency, is equal to 10 bickies, which is equal to 300 razus. Oh one my God. This is one of is those SAT to, questions, isn't it? One bicky is equal to 30 razus. One razu, or plastic coin, is often called a brass razu. But Here it's made of plastic. Of a, here, yeah, I know. It's like, it's that whole sort of like Mad Max, like, how did this end up being called this? That's not, maybe they forgot what brass was supposed to be. Here are some of the common prices for a variety of things in Tassieland. Overnight room in an inn. That's going to set you back 15 razus, but month's rent for a small house, that's seven bickies. One loaf of bread, one razu. But a five-pound sack of flour, 25 razus. Dinner for two in a restaurant. McGill, how much would you slap down for dinner with Caitlin in Tassieland at a nice restaurant? In razus? Uh, or, I mean, the the so it goes from... Razus to Bickies to Greenaways. I'd probably spend a Greenaway. <laughs> uh, it actually, man, none of these are measured in Greenaway, which is weird because they have the <laughs> denomination that it's like, why don't you use it? It's actually apparently dinner for two in a restaurant is just two Bickies. Um, Gee, and okay. Comparably, cloth pants cost one Bicky, but a cloth shirt costs twenty Razus. Back in Tassie land, you can get some leathery inside hi- insect hide armor for 100 bickies. You could also get insect chitin chain mail for 180 bickies. You get leather diving suits, or sorry, no, leather driving suits. So it's I, pr- I prefer the leather dining suit. <laughs> it's 200 bickies. I'm wearing one right now at the tavern. Of, of size, <laughs> it's 200 bickies for characters of size size level seven or lower to get a dr- leather driving suit. Uh, if you're up to size level 11, it's going to cost 250 bickies. And uh, size level 12 and 13, it's going to be 300 bickies. And anything beyond that is going to be another 100 bickies for each size level beyond 13. 30 bickies for a steel dagger. 120 bickies for a hard plastic dagger. You're going to find out why you'll need a hard plastic dagger very soon. Uh, Can you break it up and make it into resus? Well, there's that too. Uh, 38 revolver. That's 600 bickies. Uh, six of the six ammo for that. 38 bullets. That's going to be six bickies. Uh, nine millimeter automatic pistol. Six thousand bickies. You should really be getting out the greenaways for that one. Uh, clip a 13 round clip for a nine millimeter pistol is 20 bickies. Stick of dynamite. 100 bickies. Gallon of gasoline petrol. That's 40 bickies. A quart of oil, 20 bickies. A truck or airship battery, 2,000 bickies. Tank of hydrogen, 500 bickies. Tank of helium, 2,600 bickies. Tank of heating gas, 800 bickies. There's a note on these. One tank will fill or heat a scout-type airship. Two tanks are needed for up to 30,000 pound payloads, and another tank is needed for every 4,000 additional pounds of payload. Now, any metal pre-praying device is worth about 10 times what it originally cost. For example, a 35mm camera listing in TMNT, a.k.a. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for $250 would cost around 2,500 bickies. 
infrared goggles, which are $6,800 in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, cost about 68,000 bickies in Tassie land. And I'm realizing why they don't use the green away is because bicky is apparently equal to a dollar. So a dollar or 30 razus. Or, or no, a bicky is equal... Man, I don't know. No, it is equal to dollar. <laughs> this really is an SAT question. <laughs> Anyways, of course, a lot of things are now being produced in Tassie land. In fact, the industrial technology allows for items to equal 1930s quality. So that things like clothing, furniture, paper, etc. are available for prices equivalent to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle prices. Personal armor and simple weapons, swords, revolvers, and rifles, but not automatic weapons, or anything else made from metals, cost about two times as much, but are available. One other more expensive option is also available. Many items can be formed out of high-impact plastic. This makes them invulnerable to the anti-metal virus but also increases the price by about four times. So, for example, the $600 Bicky 38 revolver listed previously would cost 2,400 Bickies if it were made entirely out of plastic. So, keep in mind, watch out for that anti-metal virus. That's why they're making things out of plastic. Anti-metal virus, you know what? That's okay. I'm down with that. That's pretty cool. I've got just a little bit more information on Tassieland to give you. We've got the Tassieland Standard Production Weapons. I love these. They're classic. we got a Tassie Perth 38 revolver. you got to have a good old classic 38 revolver. Even my game has that. Uh, that'll cost you 600 bickies. The Tassie McDonnell uh, 762mm rifle. Uh, this is a, just like a dope hunting rifle that uses a good caliber of ammo. And that's going to cost 2,100 bickies. Then we got the Tassie Blue Barrel 12-gauge shotgun. This is like a classic 500 uh, Mossberg. Uh, it's going to cost 1,200 bickies. It's just like, hey, man, these are some cool weapons to have in your game. Then we've got mili recent military production. In the last few months, since the formal alliance between the Dreamtime and Tassie, there's been a new effort to produce war goods. A recently constructed factory complex in New Footscray is now turning out the following items. Now, we've got the Tassie Swan Owen submachine gun. This weapon is the latest in post-praying technology. Immensely popular, it features a high rate of fire, a dependable slug interchangeable with a revolver, and durability in the bush. Um, currently issued as standard item for all militia. This basically looks like a big Uzi, and it's awesome because the artwork has it in the hands of, like, a kangaroo man commando who has a mohawk. It's classic. That thing costs uh, yeah. 4,500 bickies. We also got the Tassie Little Gutzer grenade. It's basically like a, a pipe bomb grenade. But the thing I like about it, so produced specifically for the militia, uh, wood handle is attached to a d can of explosives Activated by turning the can around the handle, there's a five-second delay before exploding, but as a safety feature, the handle can be reset for the first two seconds. I really like that. It's like a grenade that you can, like, arm and then be like, never mind. You could, like, that is know, a intimidate some people that way. That grenades need. <laughs> yeah, for real. Uh, I, uh, a whoops, never mind for my uh, grenade. So it has no given price, so it must be 
only, you know, militia only sort of thing. I don't know what it costs on the black market in Tassie land. We've also got the Tassie Peddler radio, the first two-way field radio produced in Tassie land. It comes with a large box, uh, blah, 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 handheld microphone comes attached. You know, you got to have your radio for your crazy riffs games. Uh, picks up national station from anywhere in Aussie land. Uh, six mile range for two-way communication. And a plastic covering gives it a plus five bonus to save against anti-metal virus attacks. And uh, finally, the Tassie SAF assault rifle. Production problems and ammunition shortages have held up full production of this new weapon. It's supposed to be standard issue for the militia, but barely 50 are being produced each month. An alternative, all-plastic design, is still being considered. The plastic would shave three pounds off the weight and make it invulnerable to anti-metal virus attack. Um, But that thing has a price of 6,800 bickies. And yeah, so that's everything you could... That That's, you know, have a cool-ass uh, game in Tassieland. It's like mutant animals in 1930s Australia with, like... That's awesome. That's pretty cool. I like how, like, down the I would love- lore rabbit hole that one is, where it's like a spin-off of the Ninja Turtles game, and then this is a spin-off of the spin-off. Yeah, I I like, it's just, it's like, like, I basically just said everything that is in the small section on Tazzyland, and yet, like, that selection of things is, like, I almost want to take that challenge and, like, make a game just within those restrictions. It's like, you know, just have some, like, conventional firearms in a 1930s thing with some, like, you know, mutant sheep and... It's a constitutional monarchy. It's wild. It's a good setting. Good find. I had never heard of that before. Yeah, I'd say it's worth a greenway at least. At least a couple of razoos. Ah, oh, definitely more than... I'd say it's at least a bicky, which is 30 razoos, so... Anyway, what do you got for us? All right, so the first thing that I'm... This is a a DM's resource that uh, I thought was really cool. relates to what we were talking about on our last episode when we were discussing those 10-hour ambient noise mixes that you can find on YouTube. You were talking about, like, 10 hours of a deep fryer. (laughs) But I also mentioned that I used uh, the 10 hours of uh, the Starship Enterprise engine room whenever the players were on the lantern as background audio. Well, guess what? There's a really terrific website uh, that also, apparently, I haven't tried it, but it works with, like, voice assistants like Google Assistant or Alexa, tabletopaudio.com. It is 100% advertising free, uh, operated through Patreon and donations, and I think this is just awesome. Sadly, it's been far too long since I've played any like run any in-person D&D games but for your in-person D&D game you can't go wrong with this uh there are ambient hey I actually have something to tell you then um if you're using roll 20 for your games tabletop audio has its full catalog built into the jukebox feature which is available in the free version of roll 20 so you can actually have tabletop audio 
playing through a built-in plugin within Roll20 if you're playing online. What a fantastic feature. Man, those Roll20 guys, they really think of their players and their DMs, don't they? Um, so Tabletop Audio, it has these audio mixes that you can do music. There are mixes that are ambient sounds and minimal music, like, you know, uh, the Castle Kitchen, for example. But they've also added the interactive audio tool called the SoundPad, also free, also on the same site, where they're just soundboards with buttons. So like here, I'm loading up one called the Dungeon. This is all dungeon sounds, and you can set them to play constantly or play them like just once through. So low wind, water, bubbles, drips, footsteps, doors opening, spike trap noises, screams, roars, the sound of an ooze. Uh, I just think that these things are are so great. And it's it's funny to think back, not to get not to sound like too much of an old fart here, but it's funny to think back on like when I started playing D&D in grade six, where like home computers were barely a thing. And they certainly weren't the kind of thing that you'd run D&D off of. D&D was like pen and paper only. And maybe, you know, we'd be able to find some good music to go along with it. But man, it would have blown my, you know, 12 year old mind to know that in the future we'd play D&D through our computers and we'd be able to evoke all sorts of great ambient noises just through these amazing websites. There's so many good cyberpunk bar. I should note that tabletop audio is not strictly for fantasy. They have sci-fi. Here's historical that I would have used the hell out of for Minds of Metal and Wheels. Modern, nature, horror, just straight up music. It's it's great. What an excellent, excellent service. And now a rant. You want to hear my rant? Um, before you begin your rant, I just want to, uh, see if I can pull up. Well, well, what's this rant about? This rant is unrelated to tabletop audio. Um, okay. Because I just wanted to pick out because I am running a game in roll 20. And so, um, just a shout out, uh, two tracks that I use uh in my combat playlist for roll 20 in the jukebox are cry havoc by tabletop audio and field of heroes by tabletop audio both uh good go-to combat music tracks if you want to put on something uh just keep it from being like oppressively quiet when you guys are rolling dice and and uh yeah, that's the thing, right, is having that background audio or even just background music really helps fill in the silence between turns when players are thinking. It helps m maintain that momentum, I really find. I should note that uh, they have a an ambient sound and music combo called Tarasque Interior, and I was really disappointed that it wasn't like the bubbling of the Tarasque's stomach. <laughs> yeah. Was it just a Tarrasque inside? It's it's just like a, like a cavernous hold with some yeah. minimal music. I mean, that's the only kind of thing going to be big enough to hold a Tarrasque in it. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, rant on. All right, so this is this is related to my campaign and going through my notes, and uh, the the one thing that 
is less included. Like I do make notes, but le most of my notes on my adventures are just from my perspective and they're the details that I'm going to be using. And I note down stuff that the players do, but far less than I note down anything else. And one of my rants has to do with Whiskers the Tiger, uh, who belongs to Rath McGrath. And where was Whiskers? Presumably Whiskers was on the lantern when it exploded, but we'll find out more about that later. But Whiskers is basically a familiar. My rant is about familiars. Familiars drive me crazy, Tom. Why do you think familiars drive me crazy? I, I mean, okay, I think it depends because rules is written familiars in 5e, they can die and like they are not even regular animals they are like fey creatures and stuff they all have some sort of magic origin yeah that they're, explains sort, they're the sort of like the that you can, demons from uh, his dark materials they they always have a magical explanation of why you can pull them back out of thin air after they've exploded been blown up in a fireball that sort of thing which is good i think that's like the most important part. I feel like what you're going to be talking about is like animals that players keep around that do not have that sort of contingency. It's a bit of that, but even like your standard magical familiar, the, the problem I have with familiars is that they, they, they are like Mark from the gamers. They are, are only there when the players remember them. And normally, like the, I, I, there are some exceptions to this. Also, Mark from the room. Yeah, I feel oh, like hi, Mark. Mark from the room. There are some exceptions to this. Like, uh, Caitlin played a character in a, uh, a campaign that I ran that was based on the TV show Firefly. So, like a space western kind of a thing. Um, and she had a character who had a pet dog. And when she was like, Can I have a pet dog? I was like, On the condition that you treat this like another character because you know if you own a dog that dog is a person in your life like they're a member of your family they're a friend of yours and they are a fully realized being and it always bothers me in rpgs when somebody has a familiar and then they just don't like nothing you don't know if they have the familiar or not until they're suddenly like, oh, oh, yeah, I have a raven familiar. I'm going to use it to do this. And I, as a DM, I always find myself going like, yeah, but what was it doing up until that point? Was it just sitting on your shoulder when you swam across that lake earlier? You know, that kind of thing. So I do think that they really did a good job in correcting familiars in 5th edition by having sort of that magical component to them where they can sort of reappear out of thin air if they die kind of a thing. But they're also so useful in 5e that it's unlikely that you're going to forget where they are. Like I particularly like the, the fact that familiars can give you the help action, can use the help action to give you advantage on the attack is just like you gotta know where your familiar is in combat. It's so useful. Yeah. Part of my frustration, though, is just that they're, they are ostensibly living beings, but they're treated like any other piece of equipment. And that always bugs me. Because a familiar, I like an actual this. familiar, like a mage would have, is something like 
the, the, the owl Archimedes to Merlin, you know, and Archimedes has a personality and talks to Merlin and interacts and is its own character. Whereas far too many familiars that players in my games would play it. They just, they're, they're accessories, they're gear. Yeah, I think my, like, I agree with this in that I, it bothers me. It's funny because like, so there are, uh, like, like pillars of eternity, for example, has, a thing where basically you can collect pets and keep them in your inventory and like the pet that you have um equipped is the one that like follows you around visually and gives you some sort of like bonus and um you know that's it's very gamey it's very like they even have a thing where you can like transmogrify a pet into a different pet so that you can like get the stat bonus from the pet that you want um and yeah that whole thing of just like it's annoying it's only annoying to me when it's like the character has picked up an animal that they are then like keeping in their inventory basically um i suppose to be fair i suppose the same can be said for npcs right ultimately this is the same rant that you had about your players befriending monsters and just like making them into allies instead of fighting them i guess although like this is one thing that uh, i think kind of solves both of those problems for me is like um when we talked about that in the past the example was the ogre zombie and that was just something where like they made a friend of him and then like i just sort of like figured out a plot thing like a, a place for him to go in the plot and uh similarly i have had like at this point basically the mpoc has a like a reference that they can send characters to if they need like a daycare for their pets basically like it does it, it happens often enough that at this point it's like if a character picks up a pet I generally give them the ability to, like, leave the pet at, like, a care facility while they go on adventures so that I'm I'm not constantly dealing with, like, hey, where's, is your pet in your backpack when you get hit with this fireball? (laughs) Like, that's just, uh, I don't want to deal with it. Uh, they don't want to deal with it i don't want to deal with it so i just i feel like this is something that i've talked about in the past about my campaigns is that there's very much like a separation between the operations and the downtime activities and having that separation is like that way i can basically say weird npcs that they befriend pets that they pick up i can put that all in the downtime section of the game and then the operations it's like well they're not here you guys are just here with your equipment now. Yeah, I dealt with that in my Greyhawk campaign by giving my players a parsonage that was like their headquarters. And right. anytime they picked up an NPC or a new animal, they'd just sort of send them there. And the N- the NPCs that they picked up would tend to the animals they picked up. <laughs> It'd be funny to have that place and then have like give them a chart of like how much each upgrade for that place will cost and like watch them plan out like, Oh man, we need more money so we can build the narthex. 
That's two thousand right. <laughs> more gold, and we'll get have the Narthex for our parsonage. Well, did I? I I don't. Did I talk about this? I can never remember what I've talked about because I talk about RPGs so often. But did I tell you about the features of the parsonage? This is another sort of prime tavern topic. No, but yeah, we should definitely save that for another one. All right, yeah, I'll, we'll talk about the parsonage next time. But I think otherwise, this has been a pretty solid episode. I should say so. Lots of intrigue, big cliffhanger moments. I'd say it was worth a bicky. Um, At least a so. Greenway. <laughs> no, Greenway is worth more. I don't know if this was a $30 podcast or... No, $10 podcast? Who knows? Oh, my God. Well, certainly... If you want to give $10 to the podcast, contact us on Facebook. Comparing campaign on Facebook. We got uh, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com if you want to see our supplemental material, our pictures, our links to things like Mutants Down Under and all that other stuff. And uh, if you want to get in touch with me, just kind of personally, you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm Narnog. N-A-R underscore N-O-G. Um, I don't think anybody has tweeted me yet, and I will be shocked the first time it happens, let me tell you. Tweet Tom now. Not me. Except it is me. Anything else? Level up your character. As per usual. Um, yeah, and like, man, I really want to do that like Tassieland game now. The thing is that we do this tavern thing and then I actually want to do all the things. It's like, I can't do all the things. Sure you it's can. It's too much things, my man. Do all the things. I can't even, man, I, f I feel like I'm like so close to biting off more than I can chew campaign-wise. Anyway. <laughs> I've, uh, I mean, I guess my cyberpunk game on the side is going pretty well at this point, so that's good. It's it's maybe it's that trouble of I'm becoming too comfortable and too confident and I'm like, yeah, I could probably do another game. And there's another part of me that's like, don't do another game. Are you insane? You're already doing like three games. You're running two of them and playing in one. Plus a podcast. So anyways. Yeah. Take care, guys.